everybody. Welcome back to the show. It's been a while since I've done a solo episode, and uh, I'm excited to get back on and talk about what we're going to talk about today, because I've been thinking about this subject in one form or another for quite a while. I haven't been doing the solo shows as much, but I have been working behind the scenes quite a bit. Uh, Turns out a PhD program is quite a bit of work, so... For those of you that uh, have been following me for a bit, you know that my scholarship focuses on the intersection of psychology, spirituality, and mythology. And so I've been putting a lot of work in 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 the PhD program, toward that program. And then also I have a quite a bit of audio content that I'm going to be releasing over the course of the summer. I have another two-part lecture series that I just gave to the Air Force Special Operations Training Command in Texas. Um, And I think I'm going to put those talks up on my website soon. Those are on the quest to find meaning in life. And actually coming up, I have a completely new podcast channel that I'm going to be launching on yoga and psychology and use that as a sort of a collection point for a lot of the work I've been studying, I kind of have been noticing through my scholarship work anyway, where my interest has been going. And a lot of it has been going toward, of course, psychology and specifically yoga psychology. And so um, I'll be launching that at some point in the next couple of months in this summer. Um, We'll have quite a bit of content that I'll be putting out. So just a couple of things to consider uh, if you've been following me and and hoping for more content. uh, I also am. So soon we will get that out. So today what I want to talk about is the pre-existence of the soul. And I have to say that this is an idea that um, I wasn't raised with, right? I was raised in a Western context. Western mythologies don't make a lot of room for uh, the pre-existence of the soul or, or have any kind of idea about it. I'll talk about that in a little bit. Of course, it's more common in the East to talk about ideas like reincarnation and things along those lines. And so I thought I would put an episode out just exploring some of the mythologies that have to do with the pre-existence of the soul. Because when I started to, I guess, contemplate this idea that there was more to me than just kind of what showed up in this life, it really opened up a lot of ideas and it was really kind of a freeing subject. And so I'm really excited to um, to talk about that and to open this idea up. And I should probably say before I get in too, you know, we have you know, some mythologies and belief systems, as I said, make room for this idea and some do not. And I'm going to talk about why I think some do not and some do and maybe some used to and now they don't, this idea of the pre-existence of a soul. But a lot of people today might vehemently reject the idea of it because it feels so foreign to them. And that, you know, that's difficult in some sense because of course, I'm a pretty psychologically open person, so I tend to value other perspectives, whether I hold them or not. But part of that is because Jung makes this comment in his Kundalini lectures when he's studying the psychology of Kundalini yoga. He makes this comment that like you can only really understand anything about your own system of belief once you stand outside of it and look at it. Because when you're within it, you don't have enough objectivity to really understand exactly what's going on. So that's just something to consider because that's what I find like as I explore different mythologies and and psychologies and ways of thinking, spirituality systems, belief systems, what have you, that what is actually happening is it's it in some sense I find things that kind of take me in that I that resonate with me and that I agree with and it also fortifies some of my own thoughts and helps me understand why I think the way that I think. So um, as always, I just caution or or like to say, if you approach this idea with a bit of openness, even though you may or may not have any kind of understanding or idea about it, it can be helpful. And that's independent of whether you like, quote unquote, believe in it or not. And, you know, I talk a lot about the <laughs> the dangers of belief culture, because in some sense, I don't I don't think that what we believe is all that important. As far as it's a story that we tell ourselves, I think the way that we act and the way that we carry ourselves in reality is is much more of a a litmus test of what we believe and what's important to us. So all of that to say, let's start with Christianity, right? As I said, Christianity is what I was raised in, and I would say more of a fundamentalist, sort of literalist type of Christianity. And... I would say mainstream Christianity in general like tends to disavow the idea of the preexistence 
of the soul. Now, we probably have to look at the Bible and then the world that gave birth to it as separate from the way that the religion is carried out today. You know, because if we say something like, what is Christianity? What is Hinduism? That's even a, a more complicated question. What is Buddhism? Well, it kind of depends on what you're talking about and the context that you're talking about and the time frame that you're talking about, because Christianity has looked much differently throughout the years than it does right now. And so our answers and the way that we understand dogmas or scripture or the way we interpret scripture, so to speak, is always in some sense culturally conditioned because it's very hard to understand what opinions are yours and are also separate from the conditioning and culture that you find yourself having been born in and formed by. So if we think did some part of you exist before this, we have to understand the way our culture sees that question. So just making this point that the way it's carried out has to be understood as separately, as separate from the Bible. And then the the Greek world, especially when we're talking about Christianity, we're talking about the New Testament, the Greek world that actually gave birth to the Bible, right? So there is some talk about this idea of reincarnation having been removed from the Bible uh, in different uh, councils, you know, because what happened is as what was formerly called the way, these first followers of uh, this Jesus figure, as Christ becomes the deity of the Roman Empire, you start to see changes, right? You start to see what happens when a religious system gets combined with a hierarchical system of power, right? Like a governmental bureaucratic type system. So from that point on, when Constantine makes Christ the deity of the Roman Empire, you start to see a lot of changes and and those changes are representative of what happens when a spiritual system is combined with a a system of power, right? A system of government or something along those lines. And I think a lot of people's critiques on mainstream religion today tend to have to do with not the elements of the spirituality system, but the elements that have to do with, you know, a sort of dominant point of view. Like in Christianity, there's a very masculine point of view. And so the feminine tends to be repressed or tends to be disavowed or denied or And then that gets played out in culture because we say things like mind over matter and we tend to value uh, statements like that, right? So it's like the intellect, the masculine intellect is somehow more important than the body, which is feminine in in the sense of its underlying energetic profile, right? So when we think of masculine energy, we think of up and out, the intellect. When we think of feminine, we think of down and in, the feeling function in, in the body, right? What Jung would call the unholy trinity, which is like the darkness, the body, the feminine. And so what's really interesting, though, is you see that those things are deprioritized in favor of a masculine God. Now, that's just part of the system of belief, but that gets sort of rigidified in and hardened once that spiritual system gets combined with a, a a system or an institution of power, right? So there is some talk, all of that to say, there is some talk that reincarnation was, was actually a really big part of it, but was taken out. And that is, you know, in some sense, usually attributed to the desire for control or the desire, because, you know, there's this feeling that like the church, you know, especially when you get around original sin, there's this feeling that the church kind of uh, convinces you of your problem, you're broken, and then happens to be the one that has the solution, the fix, right? And you can see how that could rub people the wrong way because it's like, well, not only do you tell me I'm broken, but that I have to come to you for the answer. So in some sense, you maintain your sense of control. Now, I don't think it's all about a power grab, but I think that the way it's been carried out, again, in conjunction with institutions of power, does look like that. And that's, you know, especially true when you get around the medieval Catholic Church and something like uh, the indulgences, right? The indulgences were the idea that, like, if you had uh, relatives or whoever who were in purgatory or were stuck in purgatory, that you could essentially buy, you would actually pay money for a slip that the Pope would then essentially help pray them out and get them out of purgatory earlier. So it's like, now notice that none of this is in reality. This is all a story external to reality that has been fabricated in order to make millions off of people who have no choice but to follow the guidance that they're given. And so they're told a story that has nothing to do with reality, and then that story is monetized. And you can see that there is a sense in which the church 
keeps all of the power. And I think that people have a right to feel some type of way about that. Um, and so then when we get into the idea of the pre-existence of the soul and this idea of reincarnation that like, what if you, what if you're constantly coming back to life, you know, manifesting yourself in form so that you can learn more and work through the parts of you that do feel broken and the parts of you that don't understand life. So you can see that there is something kind of freeing about it. It, to me, it feels like a little too convenient that it fits the narrative that like it was removed just for power. But I do get I do get the idea of why people would think that way because, as I said, just even contemplating the idea of the preexistence of the soul that there's something so far beyond this life and has always been and always will be. I'll say more about that later. That is kind of freeing and it can be kind of liberating to approach your life in that sense. And so. You know, there is a sense in which you could see that as as something the church would want to get rid of. And so, you know, do what you want with that. But as I said, I am sort of agnostic about it. Now, another place that is really interesting is to start interpreting some Bible verses with that as the background, because the Greek culture did have a belief in the preexistence of the soul. And as I said, the Greek culture is where the New Testament came out of. There's some uh, verses that allude to John the Baptist having previously been Elijah. And, uh, you know, there's another point where there's there's another verse in John 9 where, you know, the disciples ask, ask Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Well, if he was the one that sinned and he was born blind, then that means the sin happened previously, right? And so you see things like this. Again, I'm kind of agnostic about that. I don't, I don't really think it matters, but I also personally don't place um, super heretical, but I don't place a ton of value in the canonized scripture because I think, I think God, goddess is imminent in, in everything. I, I don't think that it's only in one thing. And so to me, there isn't a sort of keeper of truth in that sense. I think truth is revealed constantly in many books, in many places, in many different things, in many different prophets. And to say something more about that, I certainly don't think that truth is held only in the interpretation of a certain group of people of a certain scripture. And, you know, I think some of the lost scriptures are really, really helpful for understanding who we are and what we're doing here. And that is the point of these scriptures, in my opinion. So there's been a sort of elevation to scripture being God that I do have an issue with. I think that when we start to talk about something like reincarnation, which is really the the idea of the transmigration of the soul, and whether there's a pre-existence of the soul, whether there was some part of us that existed beforehand, again, I don't think that's something we have to cling to as this kind of literalism or not. And I'll explain why I think that, but but just want to talk, I'm, I'm, what I'm trying to do here is open up these different ideas about the pre-existence of the soul. What do other people say about it? Now, we have to understand something else about Christianity, which is it's a logos-driven religion, right? And when I say logos, I mean the logic, right? This is, And this is what it means to be a masculine religion, is that it is logos-dominant, right? Now, what we have to understand about logic is that it is based on known variables. So it doesn't exactly start accounting for the mystery, so to speak. So when you look at the the Western God image, for example, it's kind of been hammered out over all of these different uh, councils and creeds, and so it's a it's sort of an abstracted God image, right? It's something that that doctrine it's it's very structured. So doctrine has is the thing that forms it, and so all of this rational, systematized, structured. This is a byproduct of the masculine influence, you could say, in the religion. Now here's why I'm saying I don't think it. I don't think that it's exactly proper to try to argue for whether Christianity used to have an idea of reincarnation or whether it could now, because when we talk about the preexistence of the soul, we're talking about something that is beyond the veil of death, right? You might hear the soul described as the unborn, undying self. You know, it's, it isn't rational. It isn't, it's irrational by definition, meaning it doesn't fit within the bounds of logic. Because whether it's true or not in a sort of ultimate literal way is 
it has to be speculation because it exists beyond the veil of death. And so we can't say anything for sure empirically about it. So it would make sense that a logos-driven religion that relies on systematization, that relies on logic, that relies on structure in that way, doesn't have a way of accounting for the irrational aspects of being or elements of being, you could say. And where I think that that I don't want to, let's say, how would I say this? Where I think that that gets to be somewhat problematic psychologically is when we are stuck dealing with the irrational, when emotions arise, you know, when we realize trauma is held in the body and we have to go through that experience in order to be liberated, when we realize that life is kind of madness and we have to account for the irrational, but our system of belief doesn't have a way of helping us do that. And so because the very idea of the pre-existence of the soul exists outside of life, beyond the veil of death, I think it might be more accurate to say Christianity has no idea about the pre-existence of the soul. And I mean that literally, not pejoratively, right? It's like Buddhism has no idea of God, quite literally no concept of God. It's not concerned with a sort of personal deity in that way. Well, Christianity isn't, it's not concerned with the irrational. It doesn't have an idea of it. Now, this is where I think literalism and fundamentalism can be uh, somewhat harmful is because if all of life, which by the way, I don't know if you've noticed is kind of madness sometimes, is then stuffed into the bounds of just what we can understand logically and rationally, we're cutting ourselves off from the mystery right? Because the mystery exists beyond the veil of death. And so for in my work anyway, it's been really important to try to understand how do I account for this constant unconscious mystery that we are always within? Because I've noticed that if we boil our world down only to what we can understand, so that means we're not accounting for the unconscious, we're not accounting for the mystery, mystery. Well, we live in a very small world indeed, because we are very finite. And, you know, I talk a lot about why our awareness is so small. It is so finite because our consciousness works as a selecting mechanism, meaning that it selects things out of reality. And as it does so, that's our awareness. It deselects everything else. So 99.999999 repeating percent of reality is unconscious to us at any given time because we're not omniscient, right? Because we can't account for it. So we have to have systems of belief, wisdom, traditions, in my perspective, if we want to seek wholeness, that do account for the mystery. And again, this is where we have to understand the way it's carried out as different from the way maybe it's been in the past and the culture that gave rise to it, because there is, of course, a plenty of account for mystery within the Bible and within Christianity, but something happened post-Enlightenment where Christianity felt the need to keep up with the modern intellect, and so now we see things like the rise of what's called a systematic theology, right? This is a theology based on logic, and logic is based on known variables, and so they back themselves into a bit of, cor- a, bit of a corner in that way where the mystery ends up being sort of unconsciously extinguished. And then, of course, as it's rigidified and literalized, then there ends up being only certain ways that are acceptable to exist. And, of course, that's because there are only certain truths that are acceptable, you see? And so, again, when what happens when it gets rigidified, rigidified I'm sorry, and literalized is that it gets carried out in this very kind of stringent way where then everything that's not that gets pushed out as not true. Again, there is no real idea about the preexistence of the soul. And we have to be careful that, that we don't then say, well, that means it's an impossibility. It's like we're talking about things we don't understand. We're talking about the mystery. How can that be helpful to us now? That's what I want to explore. And I say all of that just to open up this idea that we don't know shit. And we should hold that alongside all of our other ideas about what this might be. So let's talk for a minute about the soul, about what we mean when we use the word soul. Now, I'm going to read a short section just to get the conversation started from my book, Ambitious Heroes and Heartache, which, shameless plug, I will uh, link up in the show notes of this episode. But really what I'm doing here is I'm just starting to 
I'm starting to grope at the idea of what I think we might mean when we use words like soul. While every culture has its own way of conceptualizing this transcendent nature, what they all have in common is that each of them use it as a form of guidance for navigating the material world. Typically, this guidance comes as a result of an inner knowing one must learn to discern and follow. In Gnostic and Western mystic practices, this is known as the divine spark. Eastern mysticism refers to it as the Atman, or Hinduism, you could say, or Jivatman might be another way of saying it. According to the Bhagavad Gita, the Atman is the spirit existing in our hearts. We are primarily spiritual travelers consciously manifesting in form. In the uh, Abrahamic religions, it's expressed as the soul. And perhaps where we see we are made in God's image. I'm going to talk more about that later. In New Age spiritual endeavors, it's often referred to as the higher self or true self. Um, so I'm going, to, I'm going to use the word soul. And I, I want to lay out a case. What I'm trying to do in this book or this section is lay out a case for why it has a sort of unique importance in the human experience. And it has to do with that idea of the guidance system, right? Because, you know, I've noticed that when I've truly followed the soul, that I've had to betray the logic of the moment. So one example was writing this book, getting out of the military, having certain job offers, but really feeling like I was called to go do something else really feeling like I was called to go be a writer. And that betrayed the logic of culture and family and societal values because it meant actually I was going to go without a paycheck, right? And without the benefits and things. So that you can see that sometimes when we honor the soul as the guidance system, I often talk about this as the internal constitution that makes demands of us, it doesn't have anything to do with logic, right? Because I don't know why I'm being prompted to go beyond what I know. All I know is that I can't stay in the place that I am, right? When this soul prompting starts to happen. So it's, it's the idea that what the soul is is sort of a guidance system. That's something we should understand. You might think of the soul as well as a well from which one can draw infinite strength, wisdom, and guidance. You might further think of your own actions as either strengthening or weakening this internal system. We weaken our soul every time we act or speak in a way that is out of alignment with our own value system. And if I could add one thing about that, I would say I don't actually think we weaken the soul. I think we weaken our connection to it and our ability to hear it and our ability to be in touch with it. And that feels a lot like suffering when we're in this life disconnected from that. By the very nature of our being, some part of who we are has always been and always will be. According to the first law of thermodynamics, energy cannot be created nor destroyed. This implies that some part of us, our soul, our essence, the energy that makes up the fabric of our existence, has always existed in one form or another. What that means for you and me is that we've literally waited billions of years to be in this very moment. My hope is that we start acting like it. So an idea that I wanted to highlight from that section is the idea that when we start to think about the soul, we have to start thinking in terms of energy, I think. And, you know, Einstein says, if you want to understand the universe, you got to think in terms of energy. But energy is difficult for us when we look at form, right? It's a kind of abstraction. And here we find the fundamental disagreement between spiritual and materialistic thinking. Right? The religious thinking says the world is fundamentally made of waveforms, or the spiritual way of thinking, and the materialistic way of thinking, or scientific, and I don't think those are the same, but they've become synonymous in our culture, tend to look at the world as if it's particles. And what I really like about quantum physics, um, and I try not to talk about it too much, because I think if you start talking about quantum physics you really need to understand <laughs> what you're talking about. And there's a lot of people that don't. But all that to say, what it's showing us is that the particles and the waves are the same. They're just different levels of reality, different ways of viewing. So then when we start to talk about the soul, we're starting to talk about energy, right? The underlying energy that animates. And I also want to point out the fact that in Western culture, when we use the word psyche, like when you think of psyche, it's likely that what you're thinking about is the I, right? I'm hungry. I want to do this. I want to do that. Now that is the ego, right? That is not the soul. That is the ego. That is the locus of consciousness, right? And that is a very small percentage of the totality of what the psyche is. So, and this is what I was trying to say in one of my podcasts a while back, I wrote a paper on how depth psychology can help us understand Eastern mythologies. And part of that is for that reason, right? Because depth psychology recognizes the ego as a small percentage of the actual inner workings of the mind, 
right? And, and for Freud, who is kind of a materialist, this is still true. The ego is still a small part, right? And I don't really ascribe to all of Freud's notions, but I think some of them are, are really spot on. Um, but I, I think I, I have more of a metaphysical bent, obviously. I do a podcast called A Thousand Names for God. And so what I'm trying to say is we have to first even open ourselves to the idea that there is something in and within us that is trying to live in and through us that is bigger than us and at the same time as part of us. So there's a paradoxical nature of even trying to say anything about what the soul is or might be. And that's hard, right? So if we go back to our Western system of thought, which is dominated by ego consciousness, right? Most psychology today is ego psychology. How do I make the I feel better? How do I, how do I, how do I stamp out the symptoms that the I is experiencing? And that can be a little difficult. You know, when I work with clients, I'm often having to kind of help them understand that the I is only part of it, that my job is soul care. What's the soul trying to do? It's trying to live life in and through you. And if the I, the ego, can let the soul free, you get to be part of something much better and much bigger than all of your ideas and your logic and your plans. So just something that I've found. So that's the modern Western concept of psyche. Now, psyche or suke, the etymology of the word, comes from the Koan Greek word for soul, right? So psyche is soul in some sense. It's not this kind of ego or mind that we use today, you know, mind as in brain. Now, the reason I'm saying this too is because this is the culture that wrote that the first New Testament was written in, right? So if you understand the cultural views, you start to realize oh, they are a little bit different than the views that we hold now in which we use to interpret this scripture and things like that. Now, if you go beyond the Koan Greek, go back to ancient Greek, what we start to find is goddess worship. And in that time, right, so we're talking even like almost uh, like pre-Iliad days, we're talking like 4,000 plus years ago. What you start to find then is that the word for psyche and the word for butterfly are actually the same word. Now, what do you think of when you think of a butterfly? Well, it's the thing that we use to talk about transformation constantly, right? So the idea is then that the psyche, that the psyche is the thing that transforms, that what we're doing here, the reason we manifest in form is for the means of transformation, right? And also too, I think I've talked about this before, but this is also where the idea of the tomb comes from. Like, why do we bury ourselves in tombs, right? It's well, because the tomb in the womb idea, it's like we put ourselves in the tomb, which is like we go back into the earth, into the womb of Gaia, the goddess, to be reborn, because that's what the soul is. It's the thing that's manifesting through time as transformation. So, just important to understand. We talk about the soul. We're talking about the energy that is deeper than the eye. Now, another thing you might start to hear uh, when you start to talk about things about the soul is the subtle realm, right? The subtle body. Now, the thing to understand about the subtle body is you: the more subtle you get, the less borders and limitations you have, right? So the soul, in some sense, is the idea or is the manifestation of your consciousness without limitation and without border. And that's why when you get into the teachings of Meister Eckhart, for example, he starts to talk about the divine ground of the soul and the divine ground of God being the same thing. Because without borders, where does one end and one begins? And this is the problem with taking our logic which is based on what it's like to be here in life and trying to apply it to what it's like beyond the veil of form. We have no idea, but we can speculate. If there's no form, there's no limitation, there's no border. So there's a kind of, there's a kind of merging that happens just by nature of what it is. All right. So that's important to understand. Now, what we're seeing in this idea is we're recreating our creation mythologies, right? When we talk about our creation mythologies, like I'm going to, I'm going to talk about a couple, for example, but whether we're talking about the Hebrew, uh, you know, what we see in the Bible in Genesis, or we're talking about the Big Bang mythology, the modern scientific mythology, right? What we see is that which was whole or singular becomes many by entering the manifest world. So here's what I mean. 
you look at the uh, creation mythology in Genesis, how, what's happening? What's, how's God creating the world? Well, he's dividing. He's creating borders, limits, category. He divides the firmament from above from the firmament below, the lesser light from, you know, the moon from the sun. And so there's a division that happens, and that's the beginning of the world. That is what was undifferentiated oneness or chaos. When chaos is met with the proper limitations and the proper uh, borders, then it becomes something, right? Because chaos has the potential to be everything, but is in reality nothing at all. And a lot of us <laughs> recreate this in our lives because in our minds is chaos. And when we don't commit to any kind of finite border, grounding, limitation, system of thought, and this is why dogma can actually be helpful in some cases, right? Because it creates enough border to take the undifferentiated chaos and make it into something, you see, this is like the idea that we are the microcosm of the macrocosm. This is why universal principles and laws also apply to us. You know, it's like that's why you can look up at the stars, say something about the order of the world and also be saying something about the order of your life because they're not separate. They're all part of the same mystery. So in the Hebrew mythologies, as I said, what we see is undifferentiated chaos, meeting borders, limit, and category. And then if you see what happens with man is God is basically like, hey, label everything, name these things, categorize these things, right? And that is the job of man in some sense is to, is to care for the creation of potential out of chaos. Now, Big Bang mythology, what's the Big Bang? Well, it's the point of undifferentiated oneness becoming everything, right? Exploding into the universe and becoming the many. So then when we let say, well, what's the spiritual path? The spiritual path is something like the many clawing its way back to the one. So this is how we can say something like, in the human soul is this deep hunger for fulfillment to know what is to know reality, to know God or goddess, right? The reason we can, we can look at the spiritual path in that way is because we are recreating the steps from which we came. The one becomes many and the many claw back to the one, right? We climb their way back to the one. The spiritual path is the unintegrated, differentiated you becoming whole, becoming one. That's what yoga means, right? Yoga means to bind or to yoke, to yoke your consciousness with God, to yoke your body and your mind, to become one, to take what was differentiated and, and create it as one. And so that's the pattern that plays out in these creation mythologies. Now, I'm going to read this point from uh, Sally Kempton, who wrote a great book called Shakti Rising, but she's talking about the role that desire plays in the Hindu creation story. She says, in the Indian view of creation, desire is always the first seed of life. The Greek concept of eros comes closest in Western language to describing what the force of desire means in the Indian spiritual tradition, though in our time we have relegated eros to the sexual. In fact, it is something much wider and vaster. Eros is the driving force of life itself, and the erotic is that quality in reality that makes it lively, juicy, and alluring. Cosmic desire brings the universe into being, and the world is, in one sense, an outflowing of the cosmic erotic impulse." And so the whole God desires to know itself and so informs, and that's us. And in order for us to know ourselves fully, we then have to remember the wholeness, right? And all true knowledge is actually remembering. But I like this too, because it helps us understand when our desires get wrapped around finite things, around our objects of sexual desire or whatever, this is the idea that that desire is true, but in fact, the way it's being carried out is going to leave us hungry because our desire is actually for the wholeness from which we come. This gives us insight on the soul's mission. Depth psychology actually accounts for this by asserting that the psyche is seeking wholeness, right? That's a psychological principle in depth psychology. And so what does it mean if the psyche is seeking wholeness? Well, in some sense, what it means is that all of the symptoms that come up, that we try to numb or we go to psychology to fix, like psychologists to fix, right? Like I am depressed, I am anxious, I am this. Well, if the fundamental principle of the psyche is that it's seeking wholeness, and remember, it's bigger than you, it's beyond you, then your job is not to stamp out the symptoms that result 
as a result of you thwarting its wholeness, but rather to learn to be in harmony with it seeking wholeness. So then you open up to the idea of something like right impulse, wrong ritual. You know, when I drank uh, alcohol a lot (laughs) in my 20s, I didn't have a spiritual life. The impulse, we call alcohol spirits, right? The impulse was right. I wanted to lower my inhibition. I wanted to be connected to something bigger. I wanted to not be stuck in my rigid ego consciousness. The impulse is right. But the ritual was not serving me, right? It did at some points, but then it kind of stopped serving me. And then as I, what's so interesting is as I started to develop my own spiritual life, the desire for that just fell away. It was no longer a symptom I had any even care about, right? It's not even something I had to worry about. So just something to consider, like if we, if we contemplate these, deep, these mythologies deeply, they help us give context to what we're doing here, right? And that is the point of mythology. They're presenting the patterns of life and saying, this is how you can put yourself in harmony with the pattern that you were born into. Now, this can become a good measure for developing discernment too, right? Because then everything says, you know, the question by which I, I, let's say, navigate my life says, well, does this lead me closer or further from wholeness? Afterward, you know, after I do something, do I feel more, do I feel more whole or do I feel more divided? Right? That's worth considering in what you're doing because we tend, again, to weigh our decisions based on logic. But logic, the body doesn't care about logic. The instincts don't care about logic, right? They need to be expressed and they're going to be expressed, whether that's in the light or in the shadow, right? We see a lot of like the sexual instinct, for example, because it's not able to be expressed in the light. We have all these rigid ideas about what it is and how it can be appropriated and how it can be used, you know, and when it shouldn't be used and how it's shameful. Well, then it just gets expressed in the shadow. So... Okay, so let's for a minute talk about an ancient Greek myth that talks about the pre-existence of the soul. And I hope you can see what I'm doing here is I'm talking about this in a mythological sense. And it doesn't matter whether it's ultimately true because the myth is telling us about the patterns of reality that we're in now, right? That we have to conform to or not, that we fight. See, if we strengthen our personal will, it might be that we're strengthening our personal will against the soul, And guess who's going to win? The one that's bigger, the one that's unending, the one without limitation, the one with the wisdom of lifetimes behind it, right? And so that's another issue with ego psychology when it's the only thing, when we have no idea that the soul is bigger than us, that it was here before us, that there's a pre-existence of it, so to speak, then we might end up strengthening ourselves against it. We have the urge to, to go somewhere, to do something, to be someone, and it doesn't fit in with our model of reality of what we think we should be or who we think we should be. And so then what do we do? We cut ourselves off from it. We deny it. We repress it. And then it's expressed in the shadows. So an ancient Greek myth that talks about the preexistence of the soul. And so and there's one myth that comes out of some of the Platonic literature, and I think he's just rewriting it or reciting it. But it's the idea that the soul before it's born comes out of what's called the axis mundi. Now, the axis mundi is like a cylinder, that, a cylinder of divinity, you could say, that reaches all the way to the highest pole of the highest heaven, all the way to the pit of the earth, to the core of the earth, right? So it is the way in which divinity traverses the world tree from the hell realms to the heaven realm, heavenly realms. And the Axis Mundi, just contemplating that is actually, I find to be really helpful. So first of all, what would it mean if the origin of our soul was divinity? Well, it's what all of our mythologies say that we are. And it's also one of my issues with the whole like original sin narrative, right? It's because, I mean, even if we look at the Hebrew mythology, we get that out of chapter one, God declares everything as good. And then in chapter three is the fall. And somehow it's chapter three that ends up sticking to us for 2,000 or 4,000 years or whatever, right? But the idea that the axis mundi is the place that we originate means that divinity is our birthright. And that's something really worth contemplating, in my opinion, because I think we have a lot of ideas about what we are, about how we're broken, about how we're flawed. 
And there's an idea of this kind of original goodness. And remember, if we're looking at these mythologies to tell us something about the nature of being today, about who we are today, well, then we start to get to this idea that we're not trying to add to ourselves to try to learn how to become good. We're trying to unlearn everything that we're not. And of course, we're constantly learning implicitly and explicitly from culture, from family, from the people that raised us, right? From them projecting their shadows onto us and the whole thing continues. But the point is that if the axis mundi is the place of origination and that divinity is the thing that's most central and most core to who you are, then actually what you have to do is unlearn the things that keep you from knowing that the spiritual path is remembering. So if we look at ancient Near Eastern mythologies, right, the Egyptian pharaoh was an incarnation of God. And what that meant is that they were the place that the axis mundi was. So the king acts as if or or represents the place where divinity then can reach into the manifest world, right? And then what's really interesting is in the Hebrew mythology, they democratize that. All of a sudden, the impetus to become the axis mundi and to know yourself as the place where divinity is reflected into the manifest world becomes an imperative. It becomes part of who you are. Um, And I think that's good because we've lost sight of the axis mundi, so to speak. But just considering that that's the idea is that this axis mundi is where the soul comes from then what happens is the soul comes out of the axis mundi, these pods of souls that are getting ready to incarnate, and they see the three sisters of fate, right? Now, the first one gives you your fate. That's like your lot in life. Now, the second sisters, right? And they're always weaving because our fate is weaved in and out of everybody else's, out of everything that is. So the sisters are weaving our fate. So the first soul comes and it gets our lot in life. Then the second sister gives us a twist of fate. It's like a twist of the wheel. We don't know what's going to happen when you get up there kind of thing, right? Like, and that's, I mean, you know, we've really, we've experienced some twists of fate in our time. And then the third one makes it so there's no going back. Right? So you must you come out of the bottom of the axis mundi, and the only way to get back home is to go is to go up and through, right? And that's that's true. Psychologically, that's true, right? If we want to come back home to our body, to ourselves, we go through the twists of fate, through the things that have happened to us. The answer is always through. It's never around. Right? So that's the third sister, makes it all irreversible. Now it's probably worth mentioning that that's essentially what karma is, right? Karma is the law that binds you to this reality, right? And so the idea would be that your karmic situation is manifest in your life at all times. And every time you make a new decision, right, your lot, you you have free will within the decisions you make. And then your lot just presents a new set of karmic entanglements and situations of which to present yourself with. And I like that because then our relationships become a karmic agreement. You know, it's like me and my fiance have an agreement that we're going to help each other get free. That's what we're doing here. We're serving the soul of each other. So I like the reframe that karma gives us. But this idea of us getting a lot in life, like, what do you think? It's random? Like, to me, that that feels insane. Like, good luck. Um, no, I think that it's a it's law, you know, and, and it's always law. Now, that can go south. When you start to say things like, well, you know, you, this, you've seen this go south in India, actually, where it gets sort of walked out in a way that it's like you end up in tragedy and somehow it's your fault. You know, and this is the shadow, too, of the New Age system of thought, which is something like you chose to be here. You chose these situations in order to learn what your soul needed to learn, right? These are all mythologies that are groping at the idea of a pre-existence of the soul. And that can be really helpful because you could ask the question, what would it mean if I chose this? It's like, whoa. Now, if all you are is ego, right? If we just base this on the Western ego psychology, that's a problem because you know damn well you didn't choose this, right? So, But what would it mean if something in you deeper than you did choose this so that you could get free? That, that's actually kind of an interesting question, you know, worth contemplating anyway. Right, And so you can see karmic law, the idea of our lot in life, they're all groping at this same idea. So then what happens is the soul gets the, you know, the third sister of fate, no going back. 
Um, there's some more details in there that are important, but just not, <laughs> not for this podcast. And then the souls cross the river of oblivion before they incarnate, I meaning they forget it all, right? And so the idea would be something like we live a certain life and we're authoring energy into our life at all times. This is kind of a karmic idea. But the memories that we have that seem to not matter in the long run of things actually do matter because they get passed along as wisdom to the soul. I heard a really interesting quote one time that you could contemplate if you wanted to, which is something like this. The moment before you die, your entire life becomes but a fever dream. The moment after you die, you realize exactly what was true about your life and what was not. And this is interesting because you see in this idea the ego struggle to be like, does this matter? Does any of this fucking matter? This finite struggle you know, and I really like reflect, it's interesting because I spend a lot of time reading these kind of great thinkers throughout history. And sometimes it dawns on me that they're all dead, right? That we're all going that direction, that there is no, there is no not going through that, not passing through that veil. And what's really interesting is if you dwell on that, it can start to feel like it's all so inconsequential. And the idea of the preexistence of the soul, of there being something bigger than you, more than you, is also the idea that all of this matters immensely. Even though the individual things don't have a kind of permanence to them, they're still architecting the, the condition of your soul, so to speak, and that's what you're taking into eternity. And now you see, oh, okay, well, that lays on to a lot of mythologies, right, about heaven and hell and all that stuff. It's like, well, you're creating it all the time, and then you're taking it with you. So, Again, just something to consider. But also, too, I think that, that should be balanced with the idea that your life is always, this is a karmic idea, showing you where you're not free. It's always showing you where you could, where you could do work, right? So again, how can all of this be helpful other than the reasons that I've said so far? Because I think that, one, we don't have to take this literally, right? Um, it doesn't have to be taken as a sort of doctrine or a dogma. It's not like that, right? It's a, this is a psychological tool in the way that I am presenting the idea. And that's, that's mythology. That's the beauty of it. It has nothing to do with a literal history of reality or anything along those lines, right? So like there's a Zen teaching on reincarnation, for example, that doesn't take it literally at all. They just say, look, if you think you're the person that started listening to this podcast 45 minutes ago, you're mistaken, you have been mistaken. And it's the belief that you're who you were that keeps you trapped because you are conditioned by the past and you are and you're stuck in it. You're not really, but the belief that you are makes you stuck, you see? And so this actually gets deep into some Buddhist psychology that I don't want to like uh, talk about right now because I don't have any notes on it in front of me. But like just the idea that it doesn't have to be literal, right? Also, this presents the idea of the soul, right? As I said, as a guidance system, also as a well of strength, right? When you're, when spirit moves you to walk away from a relationship that is not serving you, but that you are really attached or accustomed to, or a job or a situation, it's like there is a well of strength in the soul that you can gain or that you can draw from if you have an idea of it. If you have a relationship to it, if you have a connection to it, if it's even a remote possibility of something that exists, and if not, then what happens is, well, we stay in situations that don't serve us for a really, really long time, right? And because we feel like we can't let it go because what else is there? You know, so the idea that the soul is sort of on this migratory transformational learning type experience again, it's just really helpful, I think, for psychic health in that when you feel called to transcend, to move, to change, to transform, well, it's, you're not doing it on your own. There's a guide. There's a voice. That was actually, that's where the etymology of vocation actually comes from. And we do experience our internal constitution as a voice making demands of us, right? So, so it just starts to add more of a robust language and framework around it. Now, and the final thing I want to say is that all of this is technically unknowable. I know I've said that throughout this a few times when I'm, when I'm talking about the irrational aspects of society, of reality, right? But it's unknowable. 
ultimately, what happens when you cross the veil of death is unknowable, right? And anybody that does claim to know, be weary of. You know, something I always think about in myself is like, be willing to seek with those who are, who are searching and questing and looking, but be really weary of people that have claimed to find the, found the answer. Now, I do think people get enlightened. I do think perfect knowledge and perfect faith is possible. And I think that the sages and the scriptures all speak to that. But not everything you hear should sound like the truth. What's true for us, what's helpful to us has a certain resonance to it. And as I like to explain when I give talks is like when you hear something that resonates, that means that is a, a signifier from the soul. That's resonant, resonance is something like relevance to the heart. The soul's grabbing you and saying, hey, pay attention, that matters. You know, and so not everything should sound like that. I think we know that. But anyway, those are some ideas on the pre-existence of the soul and the way it's been walked out in certain mythologies and some of the ways that can help us with our own kind of psychological navigation of the modern world. So um, hope that was helpful for you. And, you know, as always, if you're interested in these ideas, I have lectures on my website, rickalexander.com. I have a five-part lecture series on the spiritual and psychological aspects of transformational work. And then I'm going to put this next lecture up, The Quest to Find Meaning in Life. And um, I do personal coaching and things like that. So if you're interested in these ideas and want to work with them deeper, please reach out to me, rick at rickalexander.com or just go to rickalexander.com and we can, you can figure out a, an avenue that might work for you. All right. Thank you. Thank you.